This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Technology and family, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, when I was a kid, grab a stick, go hit a tree. (laughs) That was my childhood. Stick tree games. But now our kids can have iPhones, iPads. Our toddlers can have them. I mean, there's so much going on for a kid today with technology. And the kids want them, right? They're begging for a phone at age eight. How come, how come, how come Jake gets a phone? Well, Jake's 18. Jake's 20. Jake, Jake's, you know, in college. Well, I know, but... I go to school. How do you keep your kids from getting sucked into this crazy vortex called tech? And uh, when you think about it, how do we make sure that we raise these children in a healthier family-oriented way? Especially when you talk about um, we don't have any clue what an iPhone – is going to do long-term to a child. The social skills lost, we don't know. The memory, the attentions, the ability to focus, we don't know the long-term impact of what this technology will do on our kids. We've only had it for a few years, right? We do know, according to some research uh, by Microsoft about attention, that our kids are losing, their attention span is dropping. In fact, one of the studies basically compares, you know, our attention span to being, um, I think it's about eight seconds. We have an attention span of about eight seconds. The average, I think, goldfish has about a nine-second attention span. They can focus on something for about nine seconds before they're like, whoa, shiny thing. And part of that is probably because we can just defer, right? We can go right back to our cell phone and My kids, for example, they know they don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because they just can find it on their phone. So how do we integrate the technology of our our lives and keep our family um, healthy, keep them focused, and keep them safe? That's that's really what we want to talk about in this hour of the show. Also – one of the um, the big things we, we really deal with, and I deal with it a lot with my family, is how do I discipline around it? Because I, if I take my kid's phone away, I immediately have all the power in the house. I mean, I can get my kids to do anything with their phone because that's the great source and the great anchor. And I'm not sure if that's good or not. I mean, at some point... Is if that's my only access tool to have any power with my child, then I might be setting myself up. So we want to find other ways to connect. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking with Janelle Burley Hoffman about um, the the importance of of really managing your technology with your children and with your families. But one of the first things I've realized in my own life is if I don't have the discipline to manage myself, I won't have the discipline to manage my child. <laughs> And I notice it's harder and harder for me to actually just turn off the device and not to just naturally go to it. It's something that to me seems like 
I naturally just defer to the, the phone. So one of the big things I've I've been a big um, proponent of is let's start having a fast uh, where we just we just turn off the tech and we go without the tech. Let's just turn it off and see if we can go a week. Um, we've had, in fact, we've talked to our own, you know, Spencer Linton, who's uh, on BYU Sports Nation, and he lost his phone um, when he was on a trip with his wife somewhere. Somebody actually stole his phone, and he was without a phone for four or five days. And he said, honestly, it made their trip better. Having the phone stolen was difficult. That's hard. But he said it made our family trip better because it allowed us to spend time as a couple just phoneless and focusing on each other. He and his wife, I think, lost their phones. So do you have to have your phone stolen? Is that the best way, the fastest way to to be able to handle technology? And do you just look at yourself? Do you have the discipline yourself to to turn off the phones, to take the phones? Do you have the ability to to not have to have the phones being a major part of your life? And again, I don't want to be anti technology. I think it's fascinating and I think it's incredible what's happening. And yet we also still need to relate, right? At some point, we still need to uh to learn how to be healthier and and I guess actually more effective with our technology. For example, uh, some research came out talking about our children. Did you know that our children open – they have an open rate of their text messages of about 99% of text messages are read. 99% of the messages that they receive every year – I mean every day are read by the child. And when you think about that, I mean, we're so frustrated by our kids because they don't do what we want them to do, except, and we can't even get them to pay attention to us, except they will open all of their text messages. How on earth are we supposed to succeed with our kids when they don't even listen to us, when we don't even have that power with them, that influence with them? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's a different day. It's a different age. And I've talked about it on the show before about how many times I've told my kids something and then they Googled it and they corrected me. No, Dad, it's 184,000 miles. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Do you remember back in the day when you didn't have to be exactly accurate? Because the latest... Encyclopedia Britannica you had was 14 years old? Nope, not anymore. Now, folks, you got to deliver. Now you got to be able to hit it right on the mark, and you got to hit it on the mark every single time. So technology, it's not going away, and I do believe that there is a time and a place where we're going to have to figure our lives out enough to start leading the technology instead of letting it lead us and beat us up. So let me give you some tips and some tools for um, for leading the technology in your life, in your family, not just reacting to it, not just having to take it the way it is. Let's just teach you some basic skills for how you and your family can manage the technology <clears throat> in your life. First thing, I would make it an overt conversation. I would bring it out of the darkness. I would throw it up right into the middle of a conversation with your family 
And I would simply say, technology, I'm worried, folks. I'm worried, kids. What, what, what do you see happening with it? And if I were you, I'd try to get your kids to start teaching you about what's really happening with technology. Because to let you in on a crazy little secret, you don't have a clue what's really going on with technology because your kids know stuff you don't even think is possible. They have information you didn't even know was accessible. They have tools they're using that they don't you don't even you think you know. You think you know. You think you know what Snapchat is? You don't even know how they're using it, I bet. So what's cool is when I open a discussion up with my kids, some of the younger ones will tell us stuff that the older ones are doing, some of the older ones will tell us stuff that their friends are doing, and it opens up a whole new conversation that for all of us becomes pretty enlightening. Um, And I'd even overtly talk about uh, issues like pornography and what happens when they see pornography online, what they should do. Um, I wouldn't just demonize it. I wouldn't just sit there and blow it up and make it, you know, this horrible thing. I mean, it's horrible, but what I would teach my kids is what to do when they see it. I wouldn't just teach them that it's just gross and horrible. I would teach them that when you see it, do this. Turn off the computer, come and find me, and we'll we'll get rid of it. Don't be afraid. I don't because the minute you demonize it, folks, and the minute you start making it a horrible, horrible thing that shames the person, all of a sudden they're gonna take it underground and you're not gonna have access to that child. The downside to um like pornography, for example, is many of the people that are actually using it and becoming addicted to it. They are. They have anxiety. They're they're anxious, and they're using it as a anti-anxiety. They're using it as something that will calm them down, make them relax. It's the brain chemistry behind a lot of this technology that's the problem. It's not always the content. Like we always talk about the violence of the video games, but violence aside, those kids playing video games, it's medicating their brain. That's why they're doing it is because it medicates them. It numbs them. So we can argue about violence all day or we can argue about pornography all day. In my world, I'm more worried about the medication effect. There's a reason they're choosing to go be medicated by that. So watch out for it and be careful because if you shame your child, if you shame your family too much about this technology or about what you saw on their phone and you shame them and you call them evil and you call them dirty and guess what's going to happen? They will – go underground. They will take the issue and they'll hide it underground. And the minute it goes underground, you're not going to be able to deal with it as well. So instead, just address it full on. Talk about the impact of it. Talk about what happens when we get um, caught up into some technology. Talk about uh, about balance. Talk about moderation. Talk about why it's important to be able to read and why it's important to read books, not just play video games. Video games are great. And I'm going to bet, folks, that our future is going to be filled with video game opportunities. More and more occupations are going to be coming from these video gaming industries because a lot of our interface, a lot of the ways that we're going to interact with computers are going to be coming from some of the ways that they're already doing video gaming. We already know that we can now have drone pilots 
that are video game experts that can now go work with the military and fly drones all over the world. Well, yeah, but that's only one thing. Well, except that we also found out that there's technology teams that can go get scholarships at universities around the country by playing on a video game team. And video or uh, universities are now sponsoring video game teams and scholarships are being won. So your kid could actually go on scholarship to a university, a nice university, because they're a video gamer. What? That's not even a sport. You know what? It is. It's starting to be. Technology, folks, it's not going away. And we have to play it at a different level than we've ever played it before. So be careful. Be careful of demonizing them. Be careful of demeaning or shaming your child because because they play video games. Be careful of shaming them if you've caught them looking at pornography or something like that. I get that that's your instinct, and I get that it's against your value system. I'm totally with you. And the shame is going to do two things. It's going to probably increase the likelihood of them going back to it to medicate. It's also going to um, end up taking the the issue, the sin, the the tech addiction or whatever underground. So be careful. Be careful. There's really not a good purpose to ever shame someone. Or stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. McDonald's is making national news. They are planning to remove artificial preservatives from their chicken nuggets. Subway, Dunkin' Donuts, and Taco Bell are following suit. They're removing artificial items from their food as well. But as bad as fast food is, the grocery store, believe it or not, may be worse. A high-end restaurant, in fact, may be even worse. Everything you love, from cheese to olive oil, sushi, and honey, could be and probably is fake, according to our next guest. Larry Olmsted uh, joins us to discuss his book, an expose on the food industry. The name of the book is Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Larry Olmsted, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. What an interesting uh discovery you've made here. I guess it should be better known to all of us, and I guess that's the purpose of your book, is to get this information out there. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I should say that, you know, there is lots of great real food. That's why I, I called it real food, fake food. Um, you know, it's not that everything we eat is fake. It's that every category has uh, some degree of fraud, and people just need to be aware so they can avoid it. I wasn't wasn't trying to scare people right. off of food. I was trying to lead them to the good stuff. <laughs> and like you make a really good point about just an example, like Kobe steak. Um, it's there, there's more to it than just getting like the best cut of meat ever. What we're also missing by having fake food is is just great experiences with taste and flavor. Uh, and and sometimes health. I mean, there's there's really four levels on which this operates. One is you get uh, economically defrauded. You pay for something that's an expensive product like Kobe beef, the most pretty much the most expensive beef in the world, and you don't get it. So you're getting ripped off. 
Secondly, in the case of CoBV, for example, the real thing, they're not allowed to use any antibiotics or steroids or hormones in raising that meat, which is widely done in the U.S. So when you get, you know, a domestic imitation, suddenly uh, maybe it's less healthy than you thought it would be. Uh, in some of these cases, the foods you get are actually unhealthy, which would be the third level. Uh, and then you're, you're we're, the artisanal cheese, uh, food makers behind these cheeses and oils and meats and whatever it is here and abroad are being defrauded. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things going on when we buy fake food. Mm. And, and yet you think you're having, you think you're, you think you're having a great meal. And I, I guess it's, it's satisfying. And if it's not making you sick, but still there's the fraud behind it that we think we're getting one thing, but we're actually getting another. True. And some of it is making us sick. And, you know, you say you have a satisfying meal, but one of the things I've seen is one of the it's, – it's very common uh, to be able to fool people in areas with which they are not familiar. So very few Americans have ever tried uh, real Japanese Wagyu or real truffles or a lot of these kind of more rarefied foods or even really good olive oil. So it's very easy to serve you um, things that are pale imitations when you don't know what the real thing tastes hmm. like. Yeah. And, you know, as far as the, the, the making you sick, a good example, um, sushi, a very frequent substitute in sushi restaurants for tuna is a fish called escalar. And its nickname in the seafood industry is the X-lax of the sea. It gives a lot of people stomach distress. Oh, wow. It's widely known. And people eat sushi, and if they don't feel well the next day, they say, oh, I must have had bad tuna. But the reality is they never had tuna at all, and that's why they're sick. Mm. And we think, well, yeah, but come on, Larry. That's just at the really low-end tuna or the low-end sushi bars and sushi places, right? Well, for the most part, with sushi, yes, um, it is more limited. The higher-end places uh, get much better fish and are less likely to defraud you, but that's not true of all restaurants. A lot of the, the uh, other fraud that I talk about, from the Kobe beef to other kinds of seafood substitution, Red Snapper, for instance, um, is the most widely substituted species of fish in the United States. In one national study, restaurants and retail, 94% of the time people ordered it, they did not get red snapper. And that's not a fish that really shows up as an entree at low-end restaurants. Right. Um, you know, so this is a problem across the price board. 94% of the time when you order red snapper, you're not getting red snapper. Yeah, I mean, here's the crazy thing, right? I went all around the world trying some of these, uh, you know, delicious foods. I had Kobe beef in Japan. I've had Kobe beef in the U.S. But um, I don't know if I've ever had Red Snapper. The fraud is so prevalent. Um, <laughs> the only way I would know is, you know, next time I go to the Caribbean or Mexico or someplace where I can get a whole fish at the beach, I'm going to do that to try it because you just can't trust a restaurant. And, uh, I mean, again, we we always joke about the fact that we live in Utah, not not a lot of uh, – not a lot of oceanfront property here, and yet you're eating you're eating salmon, but you really may not be eating salmon if you're not careful. Well, salmon is a little more recognizable. Most of the the substitution is with your whitefish species because you know Americans are kind of detached from where their food comes from. Very few of us, including myself, you know, fish for our own fish or buy whole fish. So when you get a white fish fillet, um, you could put a fillet of tilapia and grouper and red snapper next to each other on a counter, and almost no one could tell them apart. Salmon is a little bit more recognizable because of its color. The problem with salmon is um, American consumers consistently have demonstrated a preference for wild-caught salmon over farm. They're willing to pay more for it, but 
um, as a result of that, and you can't tell them apart from each other, um, farm salmon is often passed off as wild-caught, both in stores and restaurants. One Consumer Reports study went to supermarkets and bought what was labeled wild-caught salmon, and more than half of it was not. Oh, wow. So, And I guess this is for – this is just to get more money. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all greed across the board, and some of it, you know, is, is fairly small-scale, you know um, – uh, when when the Boston Globe did a big investigation of seafood fraud in New England, they talked to one sushi place and they said, how can you serve tilapia and say it's red snapper on the menu? And the manager said, basically, um, we're not trying to fool anyone. It's it's just what everyone does. It's business as usual. and It's that pervasive. And there, you know, that mom and pop restaurant is making a little more money. But some of this is much more um, – on the scale of organized crime, and some of the scientists that I talked to said, you know, it's it's basically just like drug dealing, except if you get caught, there's very little chance you're going to go to jail. So you've got big margins, and there's rings that you know import the largest um, prosecuted food fraud case ever in the history of the United States was an organized ring that was importing banned honey from China. They were shipping it to third-party countries along the way, relabeling it as originating there to sort of disguise its place of origin. This honey had both banned antibiotics that are known to be dangerous oh, wow. and was cut with corn sugar. And over the six years, they imported $80 million worth of this honey. So this is not like a small-scale thing. And, and we've heard of... Uh... Um, the the rings and the kind of the I don't know what you'd call it I guess just the underground extra or the olive oil you know mafias that that exist out there as well talk about what's happening with olive oil and the extra virgin olive oil when you think you're buying that what are you really buying well the organized crime I don't think is as involved in this country in Italy they have a lot of problems with it our problem is more just um, that. You know, I think there's been a dumbing down of the labels. So extra virgin is supposed to represent the highest grade of quality available in olive oil. Just like when you go to the uh, uh, gas station, they have regular premium and ultra premium. So extra virgin is supposed to be ultra premium olive oil. And a couple of producers I talked to in Europe or experts estimated that maybe 8 to 10% of olive oil would qualify as extra virgin. But in this country it's virtually impossible to buy a bottle that isn't labeled extra virgin. It's like grade inflation. So <laughs> the University of California Davis did a test of supermarket olive oils and found that 69% of those labeled um, uh, extra virgin did not qualify for the legal standard for extra virgin. 60 minutes, consumer reports, there's been other studies all come out with around the same numbers. Um, so it's not. It's usually. Uh, it used to be that there were problems with adulteration. They would cut olive oil with cheaper oils like uh, soybean oil, peanut oil, whatever. But testing has gotten a little bit better. So more often than not, it's just a lower grade. It's just not. It might be olive oil, but it's not as good as it should be. And. I get really good olive oil. I love olive oil. It's, it's one of my favorite foods. And when you taste the really good stuff, you can never go back to eating cheap olive oil again. Yeah, you say it sound, It tastes It tastes old. It tastes like moldy. It's yeah. flavorless. I mean, yeah. It's supposed to be a fairly strong... Um, I mean, one of the one of the chefs that I talked to said, you know, it's the taste of sunshine caught in liquid. You know, it tastes <laughs> like freshness and brightness and... Um, uh, so, you know, and I, again, I'm not trying to scare people off of olive oil. I, it, it's, it's the good stuff is really healthy. It's, um, it's got all kinds of positive properties. It's delicious. It makes 
other foods taste good. I do like the Italians do. I pour it on top of my steak, which is kind of unheard of in this country. You know, yeah. people use ketchup or A1. But, you know, it's that good when it's good. Uh, I, did, I did a book signing in Ann Arbor last week where I had um, a specialty store do an olive oil tasting at the book signing. And I saw these people's eyes light up. You know, person after person was like, I've never tasted anything like this. Oh, that's great. Again, and we're missing so much just by only, I guess, by not being informed, which is really the purpose of your book. Exactly. I mean, at the end of every chapter, I give shopping tips, label tips, things to look for. And, you know, again and again, I've seen this just in a few weeks since my book came out. I also did a cheese tasting at one of my signings where, you know, once you taste the real thing, you don't have to worry as much about the labeling because you know what it tastes like. You can't be. The problem is most of us don't know what it tastes like the first time. And truffle oil is a great example of that. You know, it's become ubiquitous in sort of mid-level neighborhood restaurants that want to fancy up the menu, truffle fries, truffle mashed potatoes, even truffle popcorn. This has nothing to do with actual truffles, <laughs> yet we have a whole generation of Americans who are being raised thinking that the, the taste of this synthetic perfume oil substance made in a lab with no truffle in it is what truffles taste like. Uh, it's not, but people don't know that because truffles are pretty rare and expensive. Right, right. Man, fascinating. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to continue the discussion with Larry Olmsted on his book, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Stick with us, folks. We're helping you open your eyes a bit when it comes to uh, your food. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about Real Food, Fake Food, a book written by Larry Olmsted about uh, why you don't know what you're eating and what you can do about it. And uh, Larry's on the line with us, walking us through uh, some of the ways that we've been scammed in our in our food chain. And, you know, he's not here to scare us. He's here to educate us. But But this is a pretty – I mean, this is – this does amount to health sometimes. This this can end up killing or, I mean, harming you. If, if something is laced with peanut oil when you think it's olive oil, it could be a problem, couldn't it, Larry? It could. Um, I think most of the problems I've seen are, are longer term where you were maybe ingesting um, – uh, uh, something that's a potential carcinogen over a long time. It's not the kind of thing that's going to make you sick the next day. But, you know, definitely we've seen a lot of long-term health issues in this country tied to our food production. And probably, you know, the, the biggest is uh, the, the issue right now is these um, antibiotic-resistant uh, superbugs, which is, you know, a very real problem. It is killing people. It's costing a lot of money, and uh, scientists are scrambling to you know, to create new antibiotics. And, and one of the reasons we have this issue is because 80% of the antibiotics produced in this country go directly into animal feed. Uh, so, you know, I personally try to buy meat that is drug-free, whether it's pork or chicken or beef or seafood. And because of the way um, a lot of this food is labeled and sold, both retail and restaurants, that's not always as easy as it should be. Man. Well, what about the argument? Well, the government's on this, Larry. The, the governments, they're cracking down on stuff. 
the government is, is most definitely not on this. Uh, I will say that, um, I mean, the problem got so bad with seafood that in, in 2014, President Obama had to um, use a presidential memo to uh, set up a task force to combat seafood fraud. And, you know, if you think about that, you know, that, that means there's a pretty big problem with, with seafood when the president has to step in. And as a result of that, those recommendations are sort of coming out right now, and FDA is is apparently stepping up its policing of seafood, which was, was which was really bad. Um, so you know, it, there's a little bit of a bright light at the end of that particular tunnel, but a lot of these areas there is none. And, and one example that you know it's talked about a lot in the press is just the word natural. The FDA has chosen, you know, it's not an oversight. They've met about this, talked about it, had public hearings, and chosen not to make a definition for the word natural. So as a result, producers of all kinds of things can use it any way they want because there's no definition. You can't say it's wrong. And I think it's uh, one out of every four new food products introduced in supermarkets last year in all categories had the word natural on oh, it. Wow. And you can't really blame people for, like, if they look at chicken and natural chicken, wanting to pay 20 cents more a pound for natural chicken, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, it, it is natural to plump up your chicken with hormones. That seems natural. Well, it's I like mean, you can make the argument on natural so many ways. It, it So it's almost like you're saying, Larry, we can't fully trust – you can't trust the label um, or, or even what they're saying in the label. Uh, so who do we trust? Well, I mean, you can trust some labels. The problem is the onus on the consumer to know so many things. Here's a good example is grass-fed. A lot more people want to eat grass-fed beef now since the omnivore's dilemma and some of these books. So the USDA, which actually does a pretty good job of in- enforcing its labels, does not define the term grass-fed, but they do define the term 100% grass-fed. So now you as the consumer have to memorize this, and you have to go to the supermarket and say, oh, grass-fed, that means nothing, but I can buy 100% grass-fed because that's what I want. And that would be fine maybe if that was the only label in existence, but there's hundreds of these terms, uh, humane-fed, green-fed, free-ranging, um, uh, none of which mean anything. So you have to now memorize these lists, and then you have to memorize, well, who labels this particular food? Is this the FDA or the USDA? So it becomes um, kind of unwieldy for the consumer. And why aren't they, why aren't they you know, finalizing this? Why aren't they making the, the steps to better define these terms? I, it, I don't know. It's been an issue forever. I mean, for the big one used to be organic. It took decades of of uh, hearings and public outcry. Used to be completely undefined. And and when interest in healthier foods rose, producers started slapping organic on everything because they could because it didn't mean anything. The USDA finally defined organic, I think, in two thousand two. But natural and a lot of these other terms are sort of the next shoe to drop. Wow. Is um, I, I guess. I can also probably trust brands, right? Uh, it seems like I mean, in, in the article you mentioned, um, you, you know, if I want Scottish scotch, that's a the Scots are going to make sure their scotch is good. Well, I give I use scotch as an example of how real foods should be protected. So. 
for whatever, as a nation, we have long taken a stand against what are called geographically indicated foods, which are foods associated with a place. So it's legal in this country to make domestic versions of things like champagne and Kobe beef and Parmesan cheese, which comes from Parma, Italy. Uh, champagne's a real shocker to most people. Everybody says, oh, champagne can only be made in France, and it should be that way, but it's not. You can make it in upstate New York, and, and lots of people do. Um, scotch, for some reason, is the one product that our country took a stand on and literally an act of Congress to protect scotch as uh, a drink that can only originate in Scotland under, uh, made under Scottish law. So it's like one thing I say, hey, go buy scotch in this country. You'll be absolutely fine. You'll get what you expect, huh. and drink that while you read my book. Wow, that's right. It's so. So there is. I mean, geographically, I guess these people want to protect what is their namesake, their their brand. Well, absolutely. Just like we want to protect uh, software made by Microsoft and movies made by Hollywood and you know music. So we take as a country very aggressive stance on intellectual property, except when it comes to other people's. Yeah. And another thing you mentioned, and tell me if this is okay, do I, do, I trust, do I trust my stores to differentiate for me? Should I trust that a Costco and a Walmart are going to make sure that I'm getting what I, they say I'm getting? Well, the big box stores, much to the surprise of a lot of readers, do a really good job on things that involve um, sort of labeling specific. So Walmart now is the single largest seller of, of real organic produce in the United States, if not the world. Um, uh, with seafood, one of the things I recommend is looking for these third-party certifications like the Marine Stewardship Council or the Global Aquaculture um, uh, I, I forget what the third third word is, but um, you know they have these seals that uh, that sort of guarantee where your seafood is coming from. And the big box stores have been aggressive about buying from distributors that have better chain of custody control and use these seals. So for some products, they are really good. Um, for seafood, I like Whole Foods as well. But with other products like the cheeses, it's all over the board. Most hmm. of these stores sell what I would consider the real and the fake version side by side. So we need to stay educated. Uh, and really, I mean, be, become a, a real shopper, become, a, become, I guess, a connoisseur, somebody that can, can, can take it a lot deeper and, and be more, um, I guess, conversant in it. Anything else we can do that would make a big difference in, in having real food instead of just the fakes? Well, the biggest, you know, the categories are kind of complex and different, but the big general tip that I can give is – you're always better off buying the food in, in like the holist form you can. And I, I use the example of a Maine lobster. You buy a Maine lobster, you know exactly what you're getting. They can't fool you. It looks like a lobster. You buy lobster ravioli, and in some cases, it contains no lobster. Right. Once it's chopped up, once you can't see it, same with coffee. You buy whole bean coffee, you know you're getting coffee. You buy ground coffee, it's got centuries-long history of adulteration. So try to buy the food in a recognizable form that you can't be fooled by. Hmm. There you go. Well, it's great. Uh, I think it's great work, Larry. It's it, you can tell you're obviously passionate about it, and it's you've put it in a nice, concise way that we can just go eat it up. Anything else we need to know? Anything? I always call it the one thing. As we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing that makes the biggest difference to uh, to have the the real foods? I think just um, you know. 
I, I say in the book, real foods come from real places, and there's a reason why certain foods are really associated with places. So if you buy you know, Parmesan cheese from Parma, Italy, and taste it, you can buy it at almost any supermarket in the U.S. It's so much better than the copies of, of Parmesan cheese made in other places. You won't want to buy them again, and it's like that for a lot of foods. Yeah, it's so true. And, then, and you might even want to go there, get the real oh, yeah. story, taste the real stuff. Larry Olmsted, thank you so much. Great uh, luck with your book, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Everybody go check out the website as well, Real food, uh, realfoodfakefood.com. Great uh, resources with, with some background as well on, uh, on all of his research, some cited uh, sources there so you can get a deeper cut. We'll take a break come back wrap up this first hour of the matt townsend show and by the way let's bring you some real food how about a twinkie that's lasted 40 years (laughs) we'll be talking about that just right after the break welcome back friends to the matt townsend show you know when you think about it uh it's, it's too easy, I think, to just be a consumer without spending much energy thinking about it. If we want to make sure that we are not bait and switched, then you have to be informed. And by the way, that's true with your presidential election, and it's true with the, the food you're buying at the store as well. It's when you when when we get into the the details behind the scenes and some of the work uh, that Larry Olmsted was doing, it's crazy. Only two percent of the fish that is brought into this country is is ever inspected, which is crazy, isn't it? Two percent is inspected, but ninety one percent of the fish we consume in the United States is brought in from out of the country. So you may not have a clue what you're getting, and yet in, even in 1981, there was a story about um, a mass food poisoning in Spain where 800 people died because of toxic uh, oil, olive oil. Some other chemicals were put in the olive oil to cut the oil and uh, to make it, um, you know, make it so that they could make more money on it. 800 people died because of it. Now, you're not going to go die, but the bait and switch, it's a very real, very uh, real marketing ploy. And it it may be happening in the elections as well. Bait and switch is the action, generally illegal, of advertising goods that are an apparent bargain with the intention of substituting inferior or more expensive goods. They get you in cheap and they sell you really expensive or they get you in – Expensive, you thought, really high quality for a deal, and you end up getting tilapia. You thought it was red snapper, and you get tilapia. Anyway, uh, be careful. Buyer beware, right? Caveat emptor. You, you've got to watch out for yourself. And uh, at this point, too, watch out for your family. Watch out for what's healthiest. Also, go find the, the stores and ask the questions. If you're getting sushi, talk to the people there. Where do they get their fish? And and make sure you know exactly what fish is being put on it, even if it's advertised as as salmon or white salmon or white tuna, I mean. If it's being advertised that way, make sure that's what it is. And when you find a really good restaurant, start telling people about it. 
So those that have integrity uh, get to benefit from it. Now, that's one problem we have. Another problem we have, though, which probably isn't a problem. It's, it's quite honestly a blessing. We've manufactured something. You may have remember we, we did a story about a ball of butter that was about 2,000 years old that they found. Dated back to the time of Jesus. Back to the time of Jesus. A, a big butter ball. A big – in the bogs, it was covered in mud, but it was a huge wad of butter. Lasted 2,000 years. Still, I guess, palatable or usable. Ugh. But there's something else that is in the running for the butterball. It's now lasted 40 years. It started as a chemistry experiment, and it now sits under glass in Maine at a school. And it, it's simply a Twinkie. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. A 40-year-old Twinkie. Still doing great. Not moldy, not gross. Probably has that filling inside that you could just, you know, stick your finger in there like a little kid. Ugh. Roger Bonatti was teaching a lesson 40 years ago to his high school chemistry class when he put the Twinkie on the shelf as a little experiment. And they tried to see how long it would last. And by golly, it lasted 40 years. So there's no uh, that that is that's the food right there that keeps giving. You know, that you know that's legit. Anyway, that's America for you right there. We created the Twinkie that lasts forever. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your, your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner – You learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills because – Technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day 
that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills, you're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and – you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other, and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of We believe that we should have respect of each other, and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're, we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful 
than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there. Right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone, and then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels He's your younger brother, and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connections. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years, you won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. 
Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How do you raise a child in the world today where there's so much violence and we hear about it? We, we may even know that we are safer because the numbers say that we're less likely to be maybe harmed, um, depending on the community you live in. But we hear about terror attacks and school shootings and other violent acts nearly weekly. What's the best way to approach your children, and how is this violence actually affecting them? Here to discuss this very important topic is the director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education, Dr. Dan Flannery. Dr. Flannery, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Sounds like you've been doing some great work there at Case Western Reserve University uh, on this on this subject. What? Just fill us in. It's are we are our children seeing more? violence today than we did as kids? Well, I do think that um, with the advent of social media over the last five to ten years, you know, our children are being exposed to more things um, on a daily basis than we used to be, even if it's um, sort of what they see on television. You know, for us, it used to be shows like Combat and, um, you know, you had three or five channels. Right. Um, You know, now they're on their uh, phones uh, on the Internet uh, watching not only you know, sort of regular mainstream television, but cable, et cetera. So just the level of the exposure to different things, not only in their immediate environments, but, you know, certainly things that are going on around the world, uh, that exposure these days I think is much more immediate, much more intense, and sort of much more pervasive than what we grew up with. Oh. And, again, it's uh, I've had my own kids ask questions like, so is this ever going to happen here, Dad? I mean, I, I was worried about this. I remember when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and my children, because we live in Salt Lake where that took place, it became such a scary thing for them. How do we do – we, do we protect them? I mean, or is this just a part of life? Well, there's a balance there, right? I mean, you want, um, you want to reassure your children, especially when they're younger, um, that you're doing everything that you can and the other adults in their lives, their teachers and police officers and others, are there to you know, make things safe for them and to make sure that they're okay, but that you know, bad things do sometimes happen in the world. And it's, uh, it's tough when things are happening more uh, seemingly at random and sort of more uh, everywhere. You know, things can occur in a shopping mall or in a school or in an airport. So there is this balance between, you know, reassuring them and also saying, hey, you know, we also need to be vigilant and aware of what's going on around us. But, you know, there are simple things you can do. There's no rule that says your child needs to sit and watch the daily you know, <laughs> evening news every night. Right. And, and especially if they're uh, upset by that or disturbed by that or showing, you know, that it makes them anxious or... Um, is sort of depressing, you know, then then you can monitor those things for your children and and put some limits on those exposures. Talk to us about what it what violence and and their a child's view of uh, 
of violence, what does it do to their mental health? How does it actually impact them? Well, there's, there, we do have evidence that, you know, children that are exposed to violence over a longer period of time, you know, even, even in the past year, um, as witness or as victims, you know, those kids do report uh, more significant symptoms of things like uh, anxiety and depression or high levels of anger, you know, generally around their mental health. So it, we used to think that it was really only the sort of most serious incidents or the most um, significant forms of victimization that were a problem. But what we're really seeing is that when you combine sort of all of this stuff on a daily basis that they're exposed to, some kids are more vulnerable than others, and this can kind of accumulate over time. So we see really elevated levels of anger, for example, among kids that say that they're, you know, being bullied regularly or kids that say that, um, you know, in their neighborhoods and in their schools, they see a lot of uh, violence, even if they're not directly victimized themselves. So from a mental health perspective, you have to start wondering about or at least being concerned about and being aware of the potential cumulative effects of these on, on their mental health and their behavior. And we're learning more and more about brain development, for example, and the way that these sorts of chronic exposures and victimizations can impact the sort of neurochemistry and um, functioning of the brain. So that's more of a concern for us, too. As they're, as they're experiencing it, you're saying their anger goes up. Um, do they tend to act out more? Do they tend to act out more violently because they've experienced violence? Well, not everybody does, but that's certainly uh, a risk factor, right, for kids that are vulnerable and have other concerns going on. So it's not as if every child who's exposed to these things and watches a lot of violence in the media is going to go out and act on those feelings. Uh, but there is some evidence that when you combine you know, this sort of stuff with other kinds of risk factors and that anger gets thrown in there, that over time, if somebody's exposed to a lot of violence or victimized by a lot of violence, those two things do increase the risk that a young person will actually go out and, and act aggressively or violently towards someone else. Hmm. It's almost like they're, they're learning that violence is it's just a way of getting what you want or it, it's just another way. Well, there, there's certainly that, and there's certainly that, you know, violence is just uh, aggressive and violent behavior is just sort of a part of daily normal life, and uh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it's either a, a way to cope, it's a way to get along, everybody does it. Um, you know, you sort of lose that sense of empathy when someone is hurt or needs to be helped. So we see some of that evidence that kids that grow up, particularly in violent neighborhoods, if you will, that that's just sort of normal for them. Mm. That's, they're kind of desensitized to the whole thing and that violence is just a part of their daily lives. So that, you know, you become concerned over time again that as they grow up to be young adults or, and adults in our community, do they have that sort of same feeling that's just sort of been socialized over many, many years mm -hmm. for them. I just read a study about police officers somewhere that I think it's like one in four police officers suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. And we, it, it makes sense. They're around violence all the time. That's right. It's the same sort of thing. And when we do training with police officers, which we do around the country, we talk about their own you know, potential for traumatic stress symptoms and the things that they're exposed to every day, just like the people 
the young people and the adults that they interact with every day. So there is this sort of numbing, kind of psychic numbing that can occur. Uh, that's sort of, again, uh, this is just what happens every day, uh, along with the sort of automatic reactions to these things that, uh, you know, you can kind of get into when this is what you see every day. Yeah. So it, it, it affects not only our young people, but, yeah, as, as you say, our first first responders and as we say about our police officers, they're now our kind of first social responders because they're the ones who are on the front lines sort of recognizing some of these things in people. And when somebody really needs help, you know, they're often the ones who can, can make that recommendation for people to get the help they need. We hear a lot lately, too, about um, suicide rates going up in teens. Is, is, you think, is there any correlation to hurting themselves, to harming themselves um, because of just more violence, more, I guess, more of a, a desensitization to violence. I'm not sure that young people are hurting themselves because they're desensitized to violence. I think there is some evidence that really young children, you know, five, six, seven, and eight, don't really have that understanding of the finality of death. And, you know, hurting themselves has a, you know, there's a finality to that. Yeah. And I think there's some evidence that very young children sort of cognitively, intellectually, don't really get that. Well, among adolescents, it really is uh, a combination of sort of their mental health generally. Um, if they're experiencing a particular crisis, you know, a breakup or something, some kids report, you know, being bullied and being victimized. It's really a constellation of factors that kind of lead someone to that point um, of taking that significant act. So I, I'm not, you know, again, it's sort of you throw it in the pot mm -hmm. as one of many things that are going on, and it's it's like that little kid who's building uh, a tower of blocks with those wooden blocks. You know, some kids can build a really tall tower before it topples over, and some kids, you know, two or three blocks in, that tower topples over. So some kids can handle a lot of things and are fairly resilient, and other kids uh, doesn't take much to sort of make them feel like they, you know, they don't have another way out. Right. And, uh, they have trouble coping with things. So, but, but I guess, it, I guess the, the main point too, is just to remember it's impacting, right? However, whether little drips that eventually cause explosions for many of these kids, there is a, there's a correlation to some, to some mental health issues, more anxiety, maybe more depression because of uh, either, I guess in, you know, uh, living violence in their lives or just media watching of violence. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good message. Is that um, it matters? <laughs> you know, this right. this sort of stuff can be a factor, and it's not no big deal. It, just because it's different now than it was ten or twenty years ago, I think we can't take the attitude of you just got to figure it out and deal with it because that's just the world we live in these days. That's certainly a reality for us as parents and caregivers and, you know, people in the helping professions that you got to kind of figure that out. But the, the challenge is there's no sort of checklist or profile or um, set of things going on that you can draw that sort of straight solid arrow to if this is what's happening for a young mm. person, this is what the outcome's going to be. So I do think it's just important to say, hey, look, when with this sort of thing going on, whether it's the day-to-day -day stuff that our kids are exposed to or the things that are now seemingly going on around our country and around the world all the time, that kids are exposed to this. They need to process it. They need to understand it. They need to continue to feel safe. 
We need to balance that you know, perception versus reality, as you mentioned at the beginning. We can throw out the numbers and say you know, your risk of being a victim of violence is still pretty low historically, but that doesn't um, afford you the escape from the notion that you, you don't feel very safe when something happens in your own community or at a school in your city or uh, to someone you know. Yeah, and you need and you need to jump on it. It seems like to to make sure if something has happened that you're also paying even extra attention after the fact as well. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Flannery. Daniel is the director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention, Research, and Education at uh, the Case Western University or Case Western Reserve University. We uh, will return to the conversation in just a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about the impact of media and the, the exposure to media along with just um, what else we can do as parents to make sure we're safeguarding our children, making sure that they are safe and that they have a, a fair shot as they deal with a, what seems like a more violent world that they're uh, coming up in. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how witnessing violence in its many forms, uh, you know, live and in person or on television, on the Internet, through social media, through news outlets, through video games, how it is impacting your children's mental health, folks. And it's it's not doing a lot of good. Joining us is Dr. Daniel Flannery. He's the director of the Bagan uh, Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Flannery. No problem. This, uh, the, the, the exposure to violence, it seems to be going up more. Again, the world we keep hearing, uh, not the world, but the, the United States is supposedly safer. Violent crimes down in a lot of places, still up, I guess, in some big cities. But we ought to be feeling a little safer. And yet our children, if they're seeing more violence through the media exposure, they must be thinking the world's falling around them. Yeah, again, you got to put this in a little bit of historical context that, you know, even 20 years ago, it was difficult for us to really hear about things going on in other parts of the country, let alone other parts of the world, you know, we had to wait to the newspaper to come out the next morning and that's your exposure to it. You know, you could sort of limit your child's exposure to the information, um, you know, by monitoring sort of, again, they're watching the evening news or they went to bed before the news or they didn't read the paper. Um, So they weren't exposed to as much that was going on. And even when they were, it was rather limited. But, you know, nowadays they're on social media nearly 24 hours a day and multiple forms of media 24 hours a day, whether they're on their phones while they're watching Netflix or they're, you know, have the TV on while they're on the internet, while they're on their phone. Yeah. You know, so these are things that are flashing up all the time. You know, look at your own phone, you know, breaking news. It's, it seems to be relatively constant and it's there thrown in front of us over and over again. So, as adults, you know, we have some capacity to kind of filter it out. We have some capacity to kind of rationalize it or put it aside. There's certainly a natural instinct to want to know why something happened or why someone did 
something and some of these sort of horrible shootings. But it also used to be a little bit easier to say, hey, that's over there. <laughs> that's them. Mm-hmm. You know, That's not us. It's not going to happen to us or to people that I know. And the more that that does occur, you know, where something happens at a shopping mall or a movie theater or at the school down the street, uh, you know, the more anxious and concerned you become, both as a parent and as a young person who really doesn't have the capacity to process that information right. as well, to filter it out, to really understand the difference between fantasy and reality, you know, what they may be watching on a on a show. So for us, it was sort of Miami Vice, you know, there people, mm-hmm. there were explosions all the time and gun battles, et cetera, and you never really saw the consequences of any of that. Right. Um, now you see everything. <laughs> yeah, and, and in fact, if you really are looking for it, you can go see everything. Sure, on the internet yeah. especially. So again, there's just that difference. And, um, you know, we have a responsibility as parents to do what we can to kind of monitor what our children are doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't have a cell phone, but you certainly have the right to say, look, I, you know, this is a phone that I pay for. Yeah. <laughs> this is a computer that is in our house. You're going to be on the computer downstairs in the kitchen, you know, when I can be there and kind of looking over your shoulder if I need to. Or I'm going to take your phone whenever I feel like it, and I'm going to get to see what's on there. So kids are pretty sophisticated about what they search for and trying to now delete their histories and uh, what are this, you know, Snapchats and Instagrams right. and things that go away very quickly. So, um, you know, it's more and more challenging to try to do that. But um, I think there are, we can do some of those things uh, in terms of monitoring what our kids are doing and what we allow them access to. And it's more – it seems more and more necessary. I mean it's interesting to note that some of the the kind of the mass shootings of late, uh, you know, almost every other one is is perpetuated by a young adult, uh, a, you know, a, a 20 – early 20-something-year-old or even younger. And, and it makes you wonder if they, you know, developmentally just never kind of got through the the violence they experienced in their own life. Yeah, there's uh, again, there's so many things that go into those incidents and the motivations of those perpetrators. And uh, mental health issues to begin with. Mental health issues. Sort of the reaction seems to be, well, you know, if somebody goes and does that, then they must have a mental health issue. Well, that's generally true. But uh, a lot of perpetrators, when you take all of these incidents collectively over the last 10 or 20 years, very few of them had clear sort of recognizable mental illness mm. prior to instigating the act. So again, there's, that's a, a challenge where it'd be easy and, and more comforting perhaps to say, well, all of these folks are mentally ill if we just deal with the mental illness right. part of it. Or the gun part of it, of it. right. Or the gun part of it. It's just not that simple, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we also need to just deal with the fact that we have violence that our kids can access. Does, can, and I guess it depends probably on age developmentally, but do do children differentiate between news that they hear about in Syria that's violent versus a video game they see their brother playing? Well, that's a good question, and, and you're exactly right. It does depend a bit developmentally on their ability to sort of understand the differences. Um, again, what's what's a game and versus you know what's real, um, and kids are better at that as they get older. Uh, but those lines do get blurred. You know, if you're exposed to this over and over and over again, um, it's not as easy to differentiate the sort of cumulative effect of those things um, combined. But, you know, the good news is 
even with adolescents who tend to want to spend more time with their friends and not be around their parents as much, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some evidence that says, hey, if parents just are clear with their kids, you know, about what they expect from them, those kids do better. You know, so parents who say, this is not okay, or I don't want you doing this, or yeah, we, this yeah. is the time that I want you to be at home. doesn't mean their kids are going to do that all the time. But there's evidence to suggest that, you know, in some of the longitudinal studies we've done with kids over time, that if their parents just told them what they expected of them, those kids did better. That's and, – and, and yeah, laying down the expectation right. and then having conversations around it, um, I guess, too, and having time. Like being with our kids where we can actually see them using their devices, right. catch them maybe looking at something that we can then talk about um, and, and not immediately just – being punitive, but being opening up discussions. Kids, right. That's right. Being able to, uh, it's not even just about being with them necessarily. Yeah. It is about being available to them and having these discussions and, and having these conversations about, you know, with them to say, hey, what are you doing? What's, what's this about? Or, you know, I have older adolescents and young adults in my home as well. And it's sort of the joke is, you know, if you want them to come to the dinner table, you got to text them. Because, you know, they don't right. they don't want to talk on the phone. You can't call them. You know, your kids don't respond to a phone call. They respond to a text. And so there's that adjustment that we have to make as parents to say this is what this is the age that they're growing up in and this is how they communicate. But we kind of have to force the issue and say, look, we're going to sit down and eat dinner together and we're actually going to talk to each other and you're not going to be on your phone the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's hard for some kids to do right now is to put their phone down and turn it off. Uh, but that's something we can do as parents and say, look, we expect this hour or half hour or, you know, three times a week or whatever, we're actually going to talk to each other and be available to see what's going on in your day and how you're doing. Because they're, they're also going to have to do that at work, right? I just had this conversation <laughs> with my son who's in law school and said, you know, you're really going to have to, you know, be able to converse with people <laughs> when you interview <laughs> with folks and talk to them and not just respond in an email, you know, to a, a request to speak with them. So that's exactly right. They don't, they don't have any idea. They kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's, um, it's such a different age. I mean, again, we grew up kind of in an era when you didn't have the luxury of being entertained every second. The entertainment right. had to come from your head or yep. a stick you found on the ground. That's right. Hey, a stick. That's right. Um, and, and what's go outside and play in the dirt? Yeah, I mean, and now just the apps, just the apps alone. The mere fact that Pokemon Go could take over the world as it as it seemingly has that's mm-hmm. that's in a, in a week, in a month, really. Now it's created whatever a nine billion dollar value yeah, increase, and uh, I mean, my it's fourteen year old daughter is just as content to sit for hours and watch Netflix as right. the, you know. I have to you know sort of say to her, get up and go do something, or let's go outside and play catch or something mm-hmm. you know, to get them. Uh, whereas for us, we just did that. That's what we did. We were out until the sun went down and then came back home. Is 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 the technology itself making us more resilient to uh, to going like to, to being able to heal through the violence that we're experiencing in life, or is it making it harder for us? Because people could experience violence back in the day. Does technology? Because nowadays it seems like there's all, there's other information. There's better ways to research and know stuff. There's stuff online to get help. Right, right. You know, more information isn't always better. Better, right? And it's not always accurate and the right information. Yeah. 
you know so that's the that's the trick yeah there's more out there there's more available you can sort of self-diagnose your ailments better you know by googling things and symptoms on the internet but it doesn't mean that the, that you're in the best position to then go treat yourself too you know sometimes you got to go see the doctor <laughs> yeah. and and get the real information and and the real diagnosis and the best treatment course so you know certainly it's it's helpful in some ways you know you need to fix a plumbing problem you can go on youtube and watch a film and kind of do it yourself but um you know there's also information overload and uh having to sift through what's really kind of real um and accurate versus what's out there um as misinformation mm-hmm. so i think we just need to be again we need to be mindful of that we need to be careful about it and not just assume yeah that it's all good yeah they'll be fine the kids will be kids they're they're resilient and they are but one thing i i also just i picked up from your article um is the simple idea that if they've experienced being bullied, if they've experienced something traumatic, and and if you're talking to them enough, you might be able to sense that. Don't don't minimize its long term impact on them. Instead, get them help. Get them to somebody that can help them understand and process. That's right. And and the thing about all of that is that it's everybody responds a bit differently. And just because they don't act out right away when something happens doesn't necessarily mean that six months down the road or even a year down the road, something else might happen to trigger, you know, some sort of anger or anxiety Mm -hmm. or what have you. So, you know, kids could bottle things up for a while as a way to cope. And then something happens uh, down the road and, and it all kind of comes flooding back. So you just sort of have to be vigilant yourself as their parent and caregiver. And that's part of that being uh, sort of available and aware and not just blowing it off yourself as being no big deal. They seem to be okay. Um, and and ask them. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've asked my kids directly, "What's going on? You know, how are you doing? It's, it seems different now. You're sleeping more, or your grades are falling off, or you know, what's going on with this at school? I heard about this thing, and let them. You know, they can tell you nothing. Yeah, their first response probably is going to be nothing. Nothing, it's no big deal. Right. But uh, you've at least opened the door. That's right. And and the history of it will will eventually hopefully pay off one way or another. Dr. Daniel Flannery, thank you so much for your great work. No problem. And thanks for being with us. Director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention, Research, and Education. You can go look up uh, bagan.case.edu to get more information about the work they are doing there um, on violence and children's mental health. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. And when we come back, we'll be talking about getting college ready. Is college uh, taking a big bite out of your children? Is it shortening their lifespan? Interesting news. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we are really fortunate to be able to have the opportunity for higher education and go to college, aren't we? But college life can be stressful and taxing. We actually have a lot of university students that work for us here at BYU Broadcasting. And while they're attending school, sometimes they are stressed out of their heads. One of those stress cases is our very own producer, Leanna Tan. And she has recently become convinced that college life is killing her. She's going to tell us some ways college could be expanding your mind while shortening your life. I opened my refrigerator, 
only to find it was practically empty. So the next thing I knew, I was boiling a partially open box of lasagna I had gotten from an old roommate and tearing it with my hands to make spaghetti. To make it less of a sad meal, I cracked open a can of corn as a side dish. Everything was fine and dandy, and suddenly I sensed something wasn't quite right. And I was looking at the can, and sure enough, I was eating corn that expired over a year ago. Let that be an object lesson in the dangers of tampering with the laws of Mother Nature. What did I do? Well, of course I proceeded to eat it. Why? Because I'm a college student. Yes, slaving away for that bachelor's degree has made me resort to expired corn and hand-torn lasagna. I could feel my life getting shorter by the mouthful. Finally put down the fork and realized, college is killing me. Literally. It's the beginning of August and the new school semester is starting. I began thinking of all those innocent freshmen that have no idea what they're getting themselves into and decided that it's my civic duty to put out a warning to anyone entering this infernal pit called higher education. As a heads up of what you're getting yourself into, here are five diseases that you're bound to contract from college life. One. Botulism. Healthwithfood.org says botulism is a rare but serious illness that can cause paralysis and even lead to death. May you just... Drop it! It's caused by bacteria which may live in improperly canned or preserved food. Their spores produce toxins which, when eaten, can lead to severe poisoning even when consumed in tiny amounts. And let's be honest, we all know the average college student's diet consists of about 95% canned tuna. Bring on those toxic spores. Two! Hypothermia. According to the WebMD, Hypothermia is a potentially dangerous drop in body temperature, usually caused by prolonged exposure to cold temperatures, or by the extreme difficulty finding housing in that awkward week between when your housing contract ends from one semester and begins in the next semester, and you end up in that cold, hard street corner. You're as cold as ice cream! Postural kyphosis, also known as Hunchback. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. With the weight of all our textbooks these days, we'll all be walking at 90 degree angles. FixHunchback.com says, If a backpack is not fitted properly, all the weight falls on the person's neck and shoulders. Usually, in order to compensate, the person starts bending forward at the hips or tries arching the back in order to maintain the balance. However, this may cause the spine to unnaturally compress the discs. <laughs> Moreover, an overstuffed backpack also leads to back and neck pain, fatigue, headaches, osteoarthritis, and even slitted discs. Needless to say that in the long term, it may also result in a hunchback. <laughs> Separation anxiety disorder. Well, it came from Wikipedia describes this as a psychological condition in which an individual experiences excessive anxiety regarding separation from home or from people to whom the individual has strong emotional attachment. AKA, every semester after you spend four months every day building undying bonds with your roommates and classmates, and then suddenly they're torn from you. to the opposite side of campus or switch their major. Will you 
have left of them is the faint glow of their Instagram posts. Fetal growth retardation. Among all the late night cramming for exams, roommate heart to hearts, and midnight nightmares about not graduating, college causes a lot of sleep deprivation. And VeryWell.com says that sleep deprivation in pregnant women can compromise the blood flow to the placenta, which may reduce the amount of growth hormone released, which may then lead to developmental or growth problems in our unborn children. (sighs) Seems like a long road to a slow and painful death. I guess this means we'll all be anxious, hunchback, hypothermic, paralyzed people with tiny babies. But... At least we'll have a piece of paper with the university president's signature on it, right? (laughs) So, for all of you incoming freshmen ready to take on college, my biggest piece of advice for you is don't forget to kiss your mother goodbye. And if you're feeling sick at all, don't Google your health concerns. Well, I'm Leanna Tan. And that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Great interview with Stan Ellsworth um, about the importance of history. And a lot of us, I just, I don't think we get it as much as, I mean, I don't get it. I, do you know a lot of history? Do you know about American history? Could you sit down this holiday season and talk about some of these great moments and stories of, of valor and bravery on battlefields? Do you know about that? Because if your kids are asking you questions like mine are, holy cow, it's scary. So we probably need to step up and, and, and maybe do a little exercise mentally this weekend. Um, don't just let Memorial Day be the vacation weekend, the beginning of summer. Kids are out of school vacation time. Is there a way that we could just take a little time? Tell a story. Find two or three stories. Go to a graveyard and go buy some flowers and actually go put them on the, the graves of, of soldiers or somebody that, uh, that served this country. It's, a, it's just an opportunity to teach your kids, your grandkids. We need these stories handed down. So one of the things I suggest that would really help is go find people that are in your family that have been a part of uh, – that have served in the military and go tell their stories. Everybody has somebody somewhere in their family history who's probably been in the military. Go talk about it. If they're alive, go take your kids on Memorial Day and celebrate that person. If you have a neighbor that served in Iraq, take them something. Make an effort to go out of your way to thank somebody in the armed services, in the military, 
There will be parades. Go look for the parades in your area. But make it a point to actually direct this Memorial Day to the memory of those that have served and given their lives and um, and teach your kids and your grandkids. It doesn't mean you still can't go, you know, to the ball game or boating or do whatever you do. But it's powerful, folks. And Memorial Day is it's it's a day I also remember vividly going with my family to the you know to cemeteries, getting all the flowers out, taking care of uh, of the sites of of my family members that had passed away, and also to hear the stories. I remember sitting in the back of the truck and the uncles talking about those that had gone to war and what had happened and who died where and how that happened. And I remember hearing the stories, and I remember them being handed down. I remember the pictures of an uncle in a Navy uniform. And sadly, I don't even remember him. So then my kids are like, so have you served in the military, Dad? No, no, I haven't. But you had a, I had an uncle that did. Really, where did he serve? No idea. So we want to change this uh, this part of our life and start to actually carry the stories forward. I think Stan made a great point that if we don't bring the stories forward, we are losing the history, but we're also losing ourselves. Then what do the kids think is the key to being an American? If it's not the battlefield and the character, and you see it when we talk about Iraq— we talk about how many Americans died there, but we also just talk about the ability of an American to stand and fight and fight for what you need to fight for. And Americans seem to have that. But we may not have that if we don't keep the stories and the rights and the privileges clear in our kids' minds. Someday we might lose the willingness to fight for what we believe in. Heaven forbid, can you imagine the day? that we no longer understand the price of freedom. So just challenge it, all of us, myself included. We need to do something more this this uh, weekend than just going out and having a great barbecue. Also, it's a great time, I think, to just start traditions and to create some traditions. I mean, if you really, if to make it easy, go find American Ride on BYU or uh, on BYU TV and um, watch a few segments of it. Go watch what happened at Gettysburg. Go watch what happened at Valley Forge. And see if you don't feel something. The, the amazing thing about the country and all of the lives that have been given is there's an incredible spirit to it. There's an incredible peace to it. It's a religious type of experience. So what if we just turn that on? Try that. Monday morning, when you wake up, Turn on American Ride. Go find two or three shows. Just start watching it. And you know what? Your kids will gather around and focus on it. Then talk about it. Use those conversations. Use those stories to put, uh, to put some conversations into the minds and the hearts. Ask some questions. Can you imagine going to war at 15? Ask your 15-year-old son that. Can I take my iPhone? No. There's just a lot of great uh, things we've been given and blessed with. And so I challenge you to, to make it a point this year to talk to your kids about it. Also, make it a really important point to connect, 
to those uh, other generations that are older, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. They have so many stories. And go ask them about the war. One of my favorite guests, go look up in our podcast. I did a show with a a man named Terry Herschel. And uh, it, it was phenomenal, a Vietnam vet. And he tells, all he does is he tells the stories about Vietnam. And you see, this is a guy that saw the people closest to him dying regularly. He was a medic. And I sit there and I think, wow, he's lived through all of that and is willing to talk and share and is honored, you know, at assemblies. They honored him recently. But nobody knows what that man went through for our country. And he doesn't want to talk about it very much. It was painful. It's hard to go back to. But he will share it if he thinks it'll move the life and the heart of a child. So go find those stories, folks. Um, They're out there everywhere. All you got to do is listen to the stories of the the vets coming home from these wars. They're losing arms. They're losing legs. They're losing their lives. So um, let's make a difference on this Memorial Day. That's the challenge from the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody, let's go do it. Make it better and, and make it a tradition in your family to always honor the great blessings of being an American. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we always uh, joke, laugh about the millennials and how they're, you know, they're not leaving home. They just keep boomeranging back. But you know what? Um, There's something to that. And uh, Christine Romans, uh, our last guest, just brought up the fact that they, they have such a great relationship with their parents. That's not all bad. Well, yeah, but people need to grow up and... They need to learn to be on their own. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And they also need to learn to relate to their parents. So you may already have that great relationship with your kids. You may also be wondering, uh, you don't want to over, you don't want to enable it, right? You don't want them to never learn how to get on their feet. So that idea she was bringing up of maybe if they come back, you, you basically create a contract with them. And I, I'm a big believer in that. And you sit down. And we create a win-win. And you talk to your millennial and you tell them what's a win for you and what's a win for them. I loved Christine's idea that you have the the millennial be in charge of your technology. If they're going to live at home, you be in charge of your technology. That Let them be in charge of the technology in making sure you've got the best router and the best Wi-Fi numbers. And, I mean, use that. And let's have a plan for how you're going to pay off your debt. So the way I would do it is to make sure the child's getting ahead, not just, you know, getting comfortable, but that they're getting ahead in their debt. So I'd probably sit down with them and and have them set some goals, have them explain what their goals are and start making sure that uh, maybe in a quarterly meeting or something, we just talk about how things are working. I'd also maybe... You know, be careful about giving them their free space. Give them enough free space. Um, it doesn't mean you, you always have to make every meal for them. You might even want to negotiate that. Should I plan on making a meal for you? How does that work? And and what happens when we bring friends over and, and all of those discussions that need to be there? But you're not going to get very far with your millennials if you if you just have a bunch of ideas like they're just no good. You know, they're just weird. These kids aren't the same. They're not going to be like a baby boomer. They're not going to be like a Gen Xer. They're just different. And 
your child is even different from that. So there are some, you know, uh, millennials that um, Christine was calling Henry's, high earners, not rich yet, Henry's. Um, and, and, you know, maybe there's some that just love video games. So those that love video games, I wouldn't just probably have your millennial just come home and work on video games all day. I would make sure that there's some other plan. And um, that that's a hard role you got to play. I have a child that's about to graduate from college or from high school. And, you know, it's time to set some new rules and some limits. And he's incredibly smart and yet doesn't love school and yet is incredibly talented online and has built, you know, websites and YouTube pages and knows how to get traffic to them and knows how to make money online and all legal and ethical and moral. So we've got a really big plan for him. (laughs) When school's done, he's going to get a job. We're not even going to pretend to send him to college yet. He's going to get a job. And we're going to negotiate a really good deal where he can live at home, but he's got to get learning what a work life is like. And it's hard because he can make money, you know, putting together a wedding video for some couple and make great money and get it done in a day's work and then doesn't have work tomorrow. So everybody's different. So don't just assume that any age, you know, difference is going to automatically be a millennial. Figure out your child. Figure out what their wins are. What do they need out of the deal? And what do you need out of the deal? Be sure that you also share your win. To make a win-win, it's got to be mutually beneficial. You both have to be winning. Don't assume you know what their win is. Well, your win is that you get a place to sit and eat. Well, that's not always a win. They might be able to get that somewhere else, and it may not be better for them. Figure out what their win is and also be willing to voice what your win is. I'd also make the the arrangement short-term and evaluated regularly. Let's evaluate it today. Let's evaluate it in a, every quarter. Let's just sit down and see how we're doing. Is this agreement working for you? Is it working for me? I would really tie it to some other goals like financial uh, debt payments, advancing, you know, or, or money, aggregating money so that these people can go out and get into something like a home or if they're dating somebody, eventually get married or whatever. So it, it's a plan. Everybody is different. Um, and uh, I think in the end, you're, you're going to want to stay close to these people as well. We talked to, to other guests last week that so many people are just, you know, they're big into just getting away from everybody, going, you know, make their big money in New York. And when they get to New York, they find out that that's not what makes them happy. What makes them happy is being at home with their family and seeing their family and being close to, you know, the a lot of other benefits. So talk to your kids, for heaven's sake. Let's just figure this out. We can figure it out together. We're smart people. Don't judge the millennials. Um and don't just judge them by a generation. Judge, you know, talk to them. Figure out what your kids' goals are. They need your feedback. They need your push. They need your insight. They also need your patience. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, genius, persistence, and passion are important, but they mean little without emotional intelligence, without some ability to manage your your emotions and, and to understand the emotions of others. In fact, it can elevate you above circumstances that would stop a lesser leader. All of us will experience loss in some form or another, and without Emotional intelligence loss could cause us to crumble under the circumstances. Joining us today, Damon Brown is a renowned author and columnist. He's here with us uh, this morning to talk about how emotional intelligence can aid us in handling loss in our lives. Damon Brown, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Excellent. Great to have you on the show. I love uh, your writing in uh, Inc.com. Wonderful stuff. There, um, Damon, emotional intelligence, we, we talk about it on the show almost every month, but uh, just for a little summary, explain, redefine emotional intelligence for us. Sure, and so we know about IQ, and uh, as far as your intelligent quotient, that's something that we've known for, for several decades now, and it talks about uh, the ability for your brain to work in a certain way, for you to understand concepts, for you to adapt. Emotional intelligence, or EQ, is actually taking that idea but applying it to how you deal with situations emotionally. And so, for instance, yeah, teach us, yeah. Oh, oh, of course. And so, uh, for instance, if you have a uh, if you have a situation that you're in where you get into like a car accident, and the person that you ran into is yelling at you at the moment, then how you react to that will reflect your emotional intelligence. Yeah. Now, your IQ is a little bit different because your IQ might be the wisdom to know what the next step would be logically. But logic isn't going to help you if emotionally you can't deal with the situation. Yeah, if you're having a breakdown. or if you Exactly. Exactly. Your brain's not going to help you. Right? <laughs> and, and if you like, – because that's the thing with emotional intelligence is it's so subtle. It's It almost um, – it swells up inside of us. It might, my intelligence doesn't necessarily swell up and make me want to haul off and hit somebody, but my ability to control my emotion and, and I guess, too, um, understand what I'm feeling, but also look at and understand the emotions of others and know how to kind of manage those emotions. That's all emotional intelligence. Huge, exactly. I think that's a huge part of it, which I neglected to mention, but you're right, where it's not just how you feel and how you manage that, but also the whole world around you and the, the six or seven billion people around the world, we're all going to react differently. And so if you're interacting with someone who has a different type of emotional intelligence, then you need to manage that. Um, I'm actually a parent of two kids, and so I deal with emotional intelligence every <laughs> single day. Yeah. <laughs> but your baby, for example, how old's your baby, Damon? Um, actually, I have two. So I have uh, a three-year-old, and then I have a four-month-old. But isn't it interesting that um, how the four-month-old, again, so innocent, so perfect, nothing but just, <laughs> you know, just trying to eat and sleep and poop. But that little cry, have you ever noticed, like a cry at three in the morning, when you hear that cry, your brain has a reaction, and and you can almost sometimes feel and by, I have six kids, Damon. Um, so by the time you've done wow. this a lot, you your body st- you you start noticing that something as simple as just a cry or a noise or somebody saying, "Dad, why are you doing that?" can create this reaction inside of you, inside of each of us. So that's why I think I I, I didn't tell you we wanted to talk about this, but um, exp- 
because you're you're into everything, Damon. As you as I go to your website, DamonTalks.strikingly.com, you can see your your content, your books on passion and understanding, connection and communication. What do you think when we're talking about emotional intelligence about what you're seeing going on with Donald Trump? I, I think there's a low level of emotional intelligence, and I do think he's a smart man. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think he would have gotten this far. If he wasn't smart, I think he's smarter than we give him credit for. Right. And I'm not, I'm not as big a fan. I'm speaking just from a yeah. objective standpoint. You know, you don't, you don't dumb your way to the president. No, it, it, it doesn't work like that. But he and also, people, he knows how to read people, right? So he's emotionally intelligent enough to know how to get followers, but he doesn't seem like yeah, he can control yeah. his own emotion. Like when you make a funny comment about him. Well, you know what's funny is that that actually might be the part that makes him endearing to some of the population in, here in America, because you end up having someone who um, seems vulnerable and seems insecure. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Maybe he may not be, but he happens to know what to say for the parts of the population that like him. Right. Again, there, there seems to be a strategy at play, and I think it's really important to understand that. Um, one of my favorite books is The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Uh-huh. And if someone was kind of confused about what's happening with Trump right now, I would implore them to read that book and better understand how people use power. And it's similar to, um, I'm going to get slightly obscure, but I'm a big fan of the classic martial arts movies. And there's, uh, there's a trope called The Drunken Monk. <laughs> and what he does is, He's a fighter, but he actually seems like he's drunk all the time. Oh, so he's always just hanging around out on the street, seemingly drunk, but he stops a fight. Exactly. Yeah. And, and he ends up he ends up being the guy that you that's like you underestimate him. It's like, oh, well, he's he's the drunk guy. Whatever. We're not yeah. gonna we're not gonna worry about him. And then, of course, by the end of the film, he's beating everybody up and he's <laughs> saving the town and all these crazy things. I think it's very similar. Where interesting. This is, this is part of Trump's persona. Yeah. Like this. You know, I've been observing him for several years, not even several years, probably a couple of decades by now. And this is his persona, the persona you see on The Apprentice. If you go back to um, The Art of the Deal, right. came out in the mid-80s, which is controversial now because now the ghostwriter is disavowing the book. <laughs> and so I, I just read about that in The New Yorker. That's fascinating as a, as a writer. Um, but you, you see that it's always been the same trope. So the way he's going towards the presidency in the same way that he made a deal with Taj Mahal over in Atlantic City, the same way that he, he presented himself with his, uh, his ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, or actually his public ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, back in 1987 or so in the Art of the Deal. So it's kind of the same pattern. Hmm. And if you look at the history, yeah. it seems to work for him. So I don't know if he's going to get the presidency, but I definitely see what do you do? Like, I don't think we should underestimate it. Yeah. Well, have you ever written that? Is a great. You need to write that as an article. Have you ever written that in your article? No, no. I I generally stay away from politics. I bet. <laughs> but but emo, I mean, emotionally intelligent wise, that's such a great example. Every nobody paid any attention to Donald because he was he was just the drunk dude making a scene, and the next thing you know, he's he's in the final two. Yeah, and, and I think that that's something that um, that many of us can relate to, not the drunken monk part, <laughs> but yeah. that many of us can relate to as far as some of the most interesting things we've done 
has been when no one was watching the door. Mm-hmm. And so I know for myself, I've written 17 books, and a lot of the books that I wrote early on, they were totally under the radar. People weren't really talking about me. People weren't paying attention. People didn't know I wrote books. And so that really allowed me to develop a style. And by the time I got notoriety, I already had a half a dozen books out. Man. And that ended up being to my advantage because then my older books ended up selling, and I was actually developing my own voice within the way that I wanted to do it. Um, I don't know if that trumps past. No. But it is one of those things where if people knew that he'd get this far in the presidency, he wouldn't have made it this far in the presidency. Exactly. Yeah, they're like, that guy's not even drunk. <laughs> He's just that out of control. That's so true. Yeah, I knew you'd have good insight on this. Um, Kate, we probably ought to get back to your the article about emotional intelligence, because the, the ability to recognize my emotion, share my emotion, manage my emotion, understand other people's emotions, you, you posit that that could be one of your greatest advantages to handling loss, to handling tough times in your life. 100%. And it's really about reframing, reframing your experience. And I'm a storyteller. You're likely a storyteller. Yeah. So we have, that, we have that advantage where if there's something really challenging happening in our lives, we can frame it however we like. And that's a very useful tool. For instance, again, if I end up being in a situation like a car accident or something to that effect, how I frame that will totally change how I react to that. So if it's something where, well, I need a new car anyway, then it's like, okay, well, that's the loss, but this is prompting me to change, and that's something I should have done before. If I look at it, if I look at it as I have very bad luck, then that might prompt other bad things to happen mm-hmm. because everything I look at will be within that framework. It's so as true. Simple as that. And right, and creating some type of context for yourself. Um, I'm a really big fan of context. So things aren't isolated incidents, but they're actually fit within the context of something bigger. And my belief is that you create whatever that context is. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you have people who go through what could be objectively some of the most horrific or difficult things, and they seem fine. You know, they seem to, to be optimistic or they seem to be ready to, to, move, to move on with their life. And you have other people who go through things that are really basic or really simple, and it seems to totally ravish them. And I think that's beyond something where it's just people, certain people have strong personalities and certain people have weak ones. I think it's more about people setting up a context for themselves as far as how they're going to interpret what happened. Yeah. And, and you attribute that, I guess, to just kind of the in, inherent ability or, or gift of emotional intelligence. Uh, well, I think it's something that can be grown. Yeah, yeah. And you, so and more than a I, gift, I yeah. Kids. Exactly right. I brought up kids, and, and, and you said you have six. So yeah. very similar to that. Now, part of that is brain function for kids, but it's still a, a decent analogy, I think, where, you know, for my three-year-old, I'm teaching him, and my wife is teaching him emotional intelligence. Yeah. Where if you, if you don't get this particular toy and someone else wants it, then you don't have to throw something, you don't have to... You know, hit them, you don't have to yell. That's an excellent example of emotional intelligence. The same thing is happening. Someone's taking your toy. Right. How you react to it is very different. And that's something that can be learned. And that's why with parenting, that's why with um, I serve as a mentor to, to different startups and to even to, to some kids. 
and that's why mentorship is so important. That's why having good guidance is so important. And I think having a higher emotional intelligence is something you considerably work on, um, and it's a constant thing. Uh, one of the columns that I have for him, for Inc. Magazine Online, is talking about how we still make bad decisions even though we have high emotional intelligence. Yeah. And that's because that's because it's always a sense of growth. You're not going to be 100% emotionally intelligent all the time. Like, that's just not human. Yeah, you're going to have a bad you know? moment here and there. <laughs> exactly, of course. And I talked about that briefly where um, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. Oh, I am and too. And she has these, right? And so I've been involved with the TED conference. I've seen her speak at TED a couple times, and she's just absolutely amazing. Okay, Damon, hang on one sec, Damon. we got to take a break, but I want to come back, continue the discussion about Brene, also get into uh, more of uh, storytelling and how we control our story and learn from you as a writer, how we can write a better story out of our lives. We're talking with Damon Brown from damontalks.strikingly.com. Also, just go to damonbrown.net, and uh, we're going to find out more about emotional intelligence and how it can uh, help you lead your life. We'll be right back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about emotional control, emotional management, also known as emotional intelligence. And uh, Damon Brown is joining us. Damon is a writer, a columnist. Uh, he's written many, many books. Um, and if you, he's a speaker from TED Talks. If you've gone to those, he's also co-founded the social meetup app Cuddler, um, while being the primary caretaker to his uh, infant child and. Now he uh, he now has two children and raising their his beautiful children and trying to teach them how to as they grow up how to manage their emotion even more effectively. Damon Brown, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. And uh, loved your article in Inc. called uh, that was titled "This Is the Way Emotionally Intelligent Leaders Handle Loss." Um, talk to us. One thing you've taught us already is emotional uh, in, emotionally intelligent leaders manage they see they see these difficult times as a chance to kind of re-script to reframe the story and as a writer i wanted to find out from you because you talked about context as well how do we how do we write the story what what are the essential parts of the story that we need to make sure are included and are there certain parts of the story we may not need to spend as much time on that is an excellent question. I, I think there's a few different elements. <laughs> and because of storytelling, and I love storytelling, I probably can talk on and on, so please stop me if I go. No, you're good. <laughs> so, so one of the things that, uh, that's essential to story is the creation myth. So when did this person start? When mm. did it begin? And if we lean on them, um, I would implore anyone interested to check out uh, Joseph Campbell's the Hero of a Thousand Faces. And that is a classic book. It's about mythology, and it's about how there are essentially 12 or so steps to every major story that we know, whether it's uh, the birth of Jesus and his life down to Star Wars. Hmm. There's certain certain things that, certain patterns... Like a that formula. That with us. 
type of formula that, that resonate with us in, in storytelling. And it's particularly as a storyteller, it, it's essential reading, but even if you want to understand your life better. But there's the creation myth. So when did you actually start in this path? And for instance, for me, when I started writing, that was when I was a toddler. And so I learned my creation myth from my parents. Well, they said, oh, yeah, well, you started writing when you were like two and a half, three. And that's when you started your journey. Oh, I'm wow. Like, wow, that's when I started my journey. Um, my journey as far as being an author didn't start until probably about a, a dozen, dozen years ago when I decided, hey, maybe I'll write a book. And then suddenly it began, and there's a whole story behind that. And so essentially it's you owning your story and realizing that you're transforming. One of the things that we deal with in regards to emotional intelligence is us realizing what we have in control and what we do not have in control. And when it comes to storytelling, if you understand the beginning of your birth, then it's better to get control and know that this is part of a bigger story. It gives you context and it makes you understand that you have a higher purpose and that creation myth, when you started on this path, that was the beginning of your higher purpose. Uh, for instance, as far as becoming a parent, there's no way that I could be the same person I was before, before I, I had kids. So that becomes part of the creation myth. It becomes part of the thing of I'm being transformed by this, but I'm also understanding that I'm going to be a better person because of this. Yeah. And so it's essentially you making peace with the changes that happen in your life, whether you started them or if you did not, but at least creating some type of formula for that. I mean, you um, could I, even I just make it, oh, sorry, uh, th- you could even just oh, no, make man, it, Damon, please. that this accident or this situation or this job loss is the beginning of the new you or the new opportunity. I, mean, I guess you can always insert the new chapter and the new change. hundred percent, exactly. And realizing that you're, assuming even that you're going to be better if, based on this change, based on this new, new you. Yeah. And well, the thing with the creation myth, you know, which goes back to, to Campbell, is that it isn't necessarily when you're born, but the concept that we're reborn over and over again. So we're always different people, whether it's something subtle that happens during the course of the day and it changes our mindset to something, again, much bigger that changes who we are. And every time we have some type of change like that, whether it's self-initiated or done from, you know, from the outside universe, those are all opportunities for emotional intelligence. And perhaps that's really the best definition of emotional intelligence is you using your highest self to deal with the world at large. Mm. And maybe that's really what emotional intelligence is. No, I love that. And two, I I think it's so powerful that um, how the role that we play as parents and even the role that we just play as bosses, as coworkers, as friends, as neighbors, as spouses on helping to sculpt the story of those around us. Because being emotionally intelligent, I also have the ability to help you feel better about your own emotion and, ma- and your own life. Exactly. I agree with that. And just to play a little bit of devil's advocate, I think part of emotional intelligence, too, is to... Um, as they say in, in, in some of the, the corporate world, uh, not to get sucked in by the giant hairball that you're circling. <laughs> and so, <laughs> which is, again, as a parent and, and in other situations, it's very challenging. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, I, I co-founded an app 
I was working intimately with two other people, you know, and that's, and it, it was a very popular app. So that was a very, that was a, a heavy pressure cooker situation. Being a parent, particularly now two kids, because that's a new thing for me, you know, doing that very intense situation, you know, because now you have two kids and you have six. So you understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, now you have two kids who are, are equally, not equally, but are both dealing with their own emotional intelligence and knowing that they have a visceral feeling that something needs to be done right now. And so that's something that you're dealing with in the business world. That's something, depending on your circumstances, you're dealing with in your personal world. And it's not just a matter of helping to elevate other people's emotional intelligence, but also knowing when to back away. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I found is, similar to IQ, is that if you end up being in an environment where it's too intense, then it's easy to let your emotional intelligence drop. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's like the classic... Uh, the classic, uh, the, the classic uh, uh, term. It's like, you know, a wise man told me never to argue with fools because people from a distance can't see who is who. <laughs> and it's true. very, very similar to that. That's <laughs> a great you line. You get into an environment and you can lose your emotional intelligence really quickly. Um, and as I mentioned in the in the Inc. article, you know, the um, the colleague of mine, uh, Shri Shri Niverson, he actually lost his position at a very major place over in New York. And it was really easy for him to lose his emotional intelligence over that. You know, he, he's rightfully upset, but instead he turned it around and used it to essentially court all these amazing job offers. And he actually he just, he just got a new position over the past week, you know. And so since the article ran like two months ago, he already got a position that's arguably better in the position that he lost. Hmm. That's all from taking it as an emotional, intelligent man, as opposed to, to you know, licking his wounds and, and going off in the corner and, and you know, insulting or lashing out at his former employer. Yeah. Man, I mean, that, that's so cool because there's not going to be ever an end to the difficulties of life. So your ability to start spinning it in a healthier way, even anticipating it, um, knowing when to back off, knowing when to step in, you can't you can't beat that skill set. Damon, as we wrap it up, what would you say – I always like to talk about the one thing, um, and we have about a minute. So what would you say in that minute, what's the one thing that makes the biggest difference to starting to take back and gain emotional intelligence? I'd say taking a deep breath. So whatever is happening, take a deep breath and just sit with whatever's happening right now. Realize the story that you're constructing within your head. And again, back to the proverbial car accident, depending on the day it happens and your emotional state at that time, there could be 10 or 20 different stories you could tell yourself. So realize that whatever's happening in your life right now, it's based on the story that you're telling. And the, 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 quicker and the, the faster you understand that and accept that, then the, the easier it will be for you to gain control of your emotions and to understand that whatever you're seeing right now is just an incident. Mm. It's just an action. It's just something that happened. And whatever you get from it is based on the context that you're creating from the story that you tell. Yeah. Man, Damon Brown, great stuff. And keep up the great work, and good luck with your baby and your two babies, really. 
You're, you're, you've got a lot to you've got a lot to give the world, and I'm honored that you were on the show. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. You bet. DamonBrown.net uh, is the website, and you can go find out all about his books, his work. There's so many great uh, ways to communicate and connect with him and learn from him. Damon Brown. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll do a little coaches, coaches corner and uh, see if we can't, you know, even add on to what uh, Damon's already taught us. We'll be back, folks. Stick with us, helping you live healthier, happier lives right here on the Matt Townsend Show. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends to the matt townsend show hey you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, donald trump i think even hillary clinton this whole idea of emotional intelligence to be a leader you have to be able to manage your emotion you have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders – um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a, – I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, went and hid emails because – She's it, she it created fear. It she's been in the spotlight forever. The media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton, and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own. Nonetheless, people don't trust her because of that. Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels, and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him, he reacts and crushes you, thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? It might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. 
do they possess emotional intelligence? And, and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. We'll take a break. That's hour number one of the show. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you uh, live longer and lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. 